what is the most important question about Jesus? If you're a skeptic, what's one vital question that will make all the difference? If your faith is troubled, what question do you return to again and again? Now, it's not a question about Christ's birth, his miracles or his healings. It's not even the question of whether he was the son of God. These are important questions, but they're not the most important question. No. The vital question about Jesus is whether he is dead or alive. For if he's dead, his life and all that he did may still influence us today, but his words and actions are ended. His life is over, finished. The dead lie still. But if he's alive, then everything is radically different. He can show up on your doorstep. He can walk through that door. He can do new things. He can surprise. He can confront. He can encourage and instruct. He can connect with us as one living person to another. In fact, I'd go so far to say that to be a Christian is to believe and confess that Jesus is alive. This defines us. This is that who's in and who's out sort of question when it comes to the kingdom of God. We can disagree about many things and still be Christians, can't we? We can, can we? I mean, there'll probably be people here who are very keen and adamant that creation happened in seven 24-hour periods. And there are other people here equally as adamant, I'm sure, who believe it was seven long periods of time. We can disagree and still be Christians, can't we? Or about how Jesus is going to come and the rapture and when and all that sort of stuff. We can have different ideas and still be Christian. We can, we can disagree about the running of the church, about budgets and building projects and staff allocations. We can even have words that we shouldn't, but we can still be Christians, can't we? You can even disagree with your minister, though not too often. <laughs> but you can, can you? I mean, really? Of course you can. But there's one thing I don't think that we can disagree about and still be a Christian, and that's the physical, historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is alive. That's the, that's the cry and the celebration of Easter Sunday and every Sunday. You see, for everyone else, no matter how much they respect Jesus, Jesus is still a dead man. But for Christians... There's no middle ground. If he's dead, what are we doing here? We should be out there enjoying a public holiday in the beautiful central Otago countryside. But if he's alive, this is the most important place that you can be on Sunday, on this day, is shoulder to shoulder with other ragtag Christians, including the preacher, worshipping the living God. So it's no surprise that through the ages and even today, Satan works to discredit and undermine and cast doubt on the resurrection, both the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of those who believe in him. Because you know that one day we will die and then when Christ come again, we will be resurrected, not as spirits, but we will have a body, a physical body that is glorious in God's eyes and ours and will amaze us. But Satan undermines this every chance he can. And in living memory, there are a number of campaigns that we can recall 
Satan's campaigns. Some of us here, and especially in the first service, can remember the 1960s and Lloyd Gehring, the then principal of Knox Theological College, uh, who was tried by the Presbyterian denomination for denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I mean, that's, that, that was the key. He couldn't get his head, head wrapped around where Jesus was if he was actually physical body raised from the dead. In the 1980s and 90s uh, in the United States, the Jesus Seminar was a, co- uh, a coalition of liberal academics who made it to the front page of Time magazine, claiming, among other things, that Jesus did not raise from the dead. In 2000, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code was popularized, and at its core was that Jesus did not die on the cross, but he went, married Mary Magdalene and had a very nice life in Spain. Thank you very much. I mean, even the early church did not escape the devil's work at discrediting the resurrection. And we see this most clearly in Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, which we had read today. Uh, Paul had founded this church. It was a vibrant, spirit-filled and growing church. It was an exciting church, but it was also a chaotic church, a self-destructive church, and it was a mess. And so chapter after chapter through 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses bad behaviour in that church until the last but one chapter, chapter 15, where he addresses not bad behaviour but bad belief because there were some people in Corinth, the church there, that were saying there is no resurrection. Paul rightly sees this denial of the physical resurrection of Christ and those who believe in him as a threat to the heart of the gospel. So he he spends quite a bit of time in that letter refuting that lie. He constructs a carefully laid out argument, a logical proof in two parts. And so in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 11, uh, Paul lays out a really strong proof for the Christ resurrected. And then from verses 12 to the end, he argues and, and defends the resurrection of Christians at the end times. We've only got time to look at those first 11 verses, and so we're going to dive in to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Now, Paul starts here and he emphasizes the centrality of the gospel, the good news. Now, there are five verbs I want to pull out here and spend some time on. And they are, I preached, you received, are saved, hold firmly, believed in vain. We can trace this for each of us as Christians. Let's trace our journey through these five verbs. At first, someone preached the gospel to us, proclaimed it. Remember back, how was it for you? When did you first hear about Jesus? Was it sitting in church or Sunday school? Was it an evangelistic meeting? Was it a youth group that Christ first became real to you? Christian camp maybe? Did a friend share one-on-one? Did you read read about the gospel in the Bible or a book or a tract? Christian radio, TV maybe? Somehow Jesus was presented, was proclaimed to you in such a way that you had to make a decision. We had to make a call, didn't we? 
Were we going to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down to Jesus? Were we going to accept him or reject him or brace him or ignore him? Now, some of us can remember our conversion experience. You know, it was a very clearly defined moment in time. For others of us who grew up in the church, it was kind of, well, it wasn't until we look back that we realised, yeah, we'd made that decision somewhere. And that doesn't matter with the Lord. At some stage, though, we have invited Christ in. Last week, we looked at that passage in Revelation, chapter 3. Behold, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them. And they with me. And we receive Christ. We hear the knocking in whatever form it was. And we open the door and Christ comes in. So the word was preached or proclaimed. We received and we're saved. And it's a mystery. (laughs) And it's a joy. And it's excitement. And we scratch our heads sometime. But when faith, we're saved. But then Paul has these two cautions, these watch out, be careful. He says we must hold firmly or hold fast to our salvation in case we have believed in vain. And the original word for hold fast is a a nautical term. And it's a nautical term for a navigation technique still used today. Well, the term is that technique where you see a fixed point in the distance. It may be an outcrop of rock. Uh, it may be a buoy, something. And so what you do in the distance, you fix your attention, your sight on that, and you stir the, the till or the rudder or the whatever, however, and you just go for that, no matter what the tide or the winds uh, or whatever. And that you know that you will not be shipwrecked or lost if you hold firmly on that particular outcrop. And that's what Paul's saying here. Don't be distracted. Hold firmly to that distant point, which is the gospel. Do not be distracted, Corinthians, about these arguments about the resurrection. In fact, the resurrection is vital to your faith. And the Corinthians had suffered persecution to get where they were, and Paul says, don't give it all up. Don't believe in vain. Hold to the gospel. He then goes on to explain what that gospel is, the core of the gospel. Verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. What I received. Now, Paul was the only apostle who did not see Christ's earthly ministry. Paul was not there when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. Paul wasn't there when Jesus did the miracles, walking on the water. Loaves and fishes, the healing. Paul wasn't there on Good Friday. Paul never saw the empty tomb. He became a Christian afterwards. On the road to Damascus, he encountered Christ. And there, on the road, he received the gospel. And later, when he talked to other Christians, that gospel message became fooled out. And then as a missionary, he went to Corinth and he says, What I received, I passed on to you as first importance. And what he means, the next few verses, the next two verses are absolutely central and non-negotiable to the Christian faith. And this is what he's going to talk about now. Second part of verse 3. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. If you want to get the gospel, the good news, down to the smallest, most succinct summary... Then you've got John 3.16, and you've got this. 
Notice how it's bookended by the word scriptures. You know, he uses the word scriptures at the beginning and the end of the summary. Why? Because the good news of the gospel is firmly rooted in the Old Testament. It's not just some fly by night. You know, it's, it's Paul you and the other apostles use the Old Testament time and time again to teach people about Jesus. And so straight away, the core of the gospel is firmly rooted in the Old Testament and, of course, the new. So let's break this down. First of all, we're told that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. Now, Jesus' ministry caught everybody by surprise, even the disciples. They had no idea the cross was coming, but it was clearly laid out in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. Psalm 22, and my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ's death was proclaimed in the Old Testament, though it was a mystery. And it all became clear on Calvary. Christ died for our sins. Next we find that he was buried. Christ was buried. This was no swoon. This was no faint of which he later recovered and was taken to Spain and with Mary and lived happily ever after. His body grew cold in the grave. Like a smouldering candle, it was extinguished, put out no more, and darkness settled on the land. But the story does not end there. Because Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, according to Scripture. And this is the triumph of Easter Sunday. Death could not hold him down. The grave could not grip Christ at all. He has risen. He has risen indeed. And because of this, we have new life. We taste this new life now, but we will receive it in all its splendor on the other side of glory when we are raised with Christ, physically raised with him. But this this core of the gospel, Christ died, was buried, was raised, was what some of the Corinthians were turning their back on. But the stakes were high, too high, so much that Paul implored these people not to turn their back on the physical resurrection of Christ and for those that believe in him. They were in danger of shipwrecking their faith, of being cast on a reef or rocks. Hold tight to their core of the message of the gospel. Christ has risen, our sins are forgiven. Now Paul, after stating that the gospel was really central, and then telling us what the core is, he then goes and lays down a proof of the gospel, a proof by multiple witnesses. Now, in a court of law, if you have an eyewitness and that stands up before the judge and the jury and says, I saw this, that carries a lot of weight. If you have more than one witness, it carries more judicial weight. And if these witnesses are consistent, then the judicial weight just keeps growing and growing and growing. And this is what we have here. We have multiple eyewitnesses that are in agreement that they have seen the risen Jesus Christ. And so there are six witnesses. Six witnesses. Firstly, Peter. After that, he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. To Peter and the twelve. Peter. Peter, who had rejected Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Peter, who was devastated. But Peter, who ran to that empty tomb, as we heard about this morning, and he looked at it and he said, what's happening here? And it was that Peter and the rest of the twelve that Jesus appeared to that night. And that's the second list. 
after that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And remember that first night. There's Peter and the other disciples on that first Easter Sunday night, totally confused. And then Jesus appears. And they're terrified. They think it's a ghost. But Jesus eats some bread and some fish, and, and they know he's risen. But someone wasn't there. Who wasn't there that night? Yeah, Thomas. And he comes in afterwards and wonders what the fuss is about. And when he hears, he can't believe it. He's sceptical. That's ridiculous. No one's raised from the dead, not until last days. And then a week later, who should turn up but Jesus? And in John chapter 20, 27, Jesus says to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And what does Thomas do? He falls on his knees and worships Christ. So those are the first two groups of eyewitnesses, Peter and the twelve. And next we have the 500 who saw Jesus at one time. Now, there is no other record of this sighting in the rest of scriptures. This is the only time where there is a reference to these 500. So we don't know a lot. Theologians love to write pages and pages of speculation that other theologians like to criticise. We'll just leave that in their ball. Look, we don't know. But the Corinthians knew. And Paul says, well, some of them are dead, fallen asleep. But there's a whole bunch of them that you can go and check with. You can go and ask these people whether Jesus rose from the dead, and they will tell you. So they are a powerful group of witnesses. Fourthly, we have James. Uh, now, this is not the brother of John, the, the two brothers that we see kicking around in the Gospels with Jesus. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, the son of Mary and Joseph, who during Jesus' life, James, his, his younger brother, thought he was crazy, thought he was mad. And there's no account of this in Scripture, but, but church history tells us that after Christ died, he appeared to his brother. And his brother saw Jesus and fell to his knees and said, My Lord. And then James became the James we read about in Acts, who became the head of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, read about in Acts 15. The book of James tucked at the back towards the Revelation. That's Jesus' half-brother. And so the Corinthians knew James. They could ask him, Hey, did your brother... Raised from the dead. Yes, he did. Fifthly, we have the apostles here. And again, theologians love this because it's a little bit obscure. And Paul probably means apostles, not just the twelve, but other apostles that were working at that time. But again, they had seen Jesus and they could be, uh, you could ask them. And then lastly of all, it's Paul himself. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. As one abnormally born. Paul, who had once persecuted the church, who had Christians beaten and thrown in jail. The same Paul who least deserved it, met the resurrected Christ. And we know the story well, don't we? Damascus Road, he had in his, um, in his satchel while he was riding a donkey. All of these official papers that gave him permission to throw believers in Damascus into jail and have them beaten. And then Jesus appeared. And he was blinded and for three days and, and, and miraculously healed. But he met the risen Jesus Christ. And that's why he puts himself at last on this list. And last of all, he appeared to me, to one abnormally born.
And Paul here finishes his evidence, his proof by multiple witnesses. If you had that many witnesses, eyewitnesses in a court of law today in New Zealand saying we saw something happening, there's no jury or judge that would disbelieve them. If you had six groups of eyewitnesses who were consistent, the judicial weight is huge, absolutely huge. Now, of course, there is the complication of it being a miracle and all these other things as well, but that's very strong evidence. But Paul doesn't want to leave it there as just a legal argument. He wants to get very, very personal. And so we have in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. See, Paul's removed himself from the legal argument and has got very personal. Because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's one of those really special passages in the Bible, isn't it? The more you ponder and turn that over in your own mind, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It just gets deeper and deeper to your heart, doesn't it? And it's one of those things where on the one hand, it's, there's a sense of sadness because of my need for grace, but on the other hand, this deep sense of joy. Now, it's not like saying, take me and leave me. You know, some people, they're challenged and they say, oh, I am what I am, take me or leave me. You know, they can be challenged in a behaviour or an attitude. That's, yeah, yeah, there's a few nods, eh? You, you know that sort of thing, haven't you? You know, people just say, look, that's it. This is not at all what it is, is it? No. What happens is, remember Jesus said, those who have forgiven much, love much? I think you probably see it clearest here in the New Testament. Paul had been forgiven so much that his response was this spontaneous, heartfelt love. And so he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But by this grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed, that Christ rose from the dead. And so, what, what's this all mean? How do we respond this Easter? Well, we celebrate, knowing that our faith is built on the strongest of foundations. Christ was died, he was buried, but he rose again. The tomb was empty. The evidence is serious and it's significant. And without a doubt, Satan is actively at the moment undermining where he can, trying to make us as individuals and us as a church doubt the very foundation of our faith. But this Easter call is for us to celebrate and in the face of all those doubters declare Christ is risen. He is raised from the dead. And the second thing is, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I mean, that's the message of Easter, that God wants to reach down and make that difference in your life. And many of us can say, I am only here by the grace of God. That's certainly my story, and I know it's some of your stories. Even though I haven't even heard them, I am sure that you are where you are by the grace of God. And we celebrate that this Easter. And finally, 
You know, Paul argues about the physical resurrection of, of, of us believers, but he can't help himself. He gets carried away in praise and glory. And so he ends this chapter by saying this, Death has been swallowed up. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Wonderful words of praise and declaration. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how he finishes his letter. You know, those ragtag, chaotic Corinthians, he corrects, 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 and then he finishes with this wonderful declaration of the resurrection. And 16 is a bunch of very warm goodbyes and, you know, say hi to this person and, and, and I love you guys heaps. But this is how he ends his letter. And this is how we celebrate Easter. We stand confident, joining our voices with the last 20 centuries of believers in the full knowledge and the physical, historical resurrection of Christ on that first Easter Sunday. That our sins are forgiven, but we need to hold fast. Remember that navigation term? We've got to have Christ and his resurrection on the horizon and absolutely fixed on it so that our faith is not in vain. This is what we declare this Easter. Rejoice greatly, O people of God. Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Let's pray.